This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. To H.L. Mencken, Puritanism was the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Indeed, Puritans remain notorious not for the purity of the society they endeavored to create, but rather for the notorious harshness of their societal strictures. In our modern times, a new similar cultural movement is emerging to challenge American societal norms. A world in a generation away from the moral majority of the Republican right of the 1980s, a new moral crusade is emerging from the political left. United by the quest to establish social ideological purity, modern activists set out to police our public spaces to call out those who espouse ideas outside their progressive orthodoxy and publicly punish any perceived transgressors in any way possible. Not content to solely target high-profile public figures, these new quasi-religious enforcers unleash their wrath on any disobedient actors, from small business owners to hobbyists to those in the creative class. Whenever their work fails to sufficiently acknowledge the systemic flaws and collective crimes recognized by these modern moralizers. Whereas some may celebrate the left's departure from the countercultural libertine intuitions of the 1960s, this new fanaticism carries a cost beyond the lack of grace it shows its victims. Indeed, by creating a climate of fear, this movement is poised to diminish the vitality of the marketplace of ideas and range of artistic expression from all points on the ideological spectrum. Where did this modern crusade originate? What beliefs animate its enforcers? And what can the history of similar moral revivals teach us about the likely outcome of this newest movement? My guest today is Noah Rothman, associate editor at Commentary Magazine and author of the recently released book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War and Fun, in which Mr. Rothman finds many similarities between beliefs and behaviors of the original Puritans who settled in New England in the 17th century and the modern-day purity seekers who live amongst us but whose power resides in the ever-present force of online media. He will share with us how the aspiration for good in society in the past and present can turn the virtuous into villains and moralists into mobs. When I return, I'll be joined by associate editor and author Noah Rothman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to be joined by Commentary Magazine's associate editor and author of a new book entitled Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, Noah Rothman. Welcome to Hubwonk, Noah. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, congratulations on this new book. I enjoyed it immensely. It was a page turn for me, and uh, I actually wound up laughing out loud, which is is uh, saying a lot. Uh, it does have a serious theme. Uh, in fact, um, the subtitle is uh, You Are Taking Aim at the War on Fun. Uh, that's very mean- heartening to hear that, Joe. Thank you <laughs> so, uh, so much. I appreciate it. Fundamentally, this is an attack on sanctimony, and there's no answer to an excess of sanctimony that involves more sanctimony. So I was trying to strike an irreverent tone, and I'm I'm glad it uh, it resonated with you. Sure, and I don't want to um, very late. I think your ambition in the book uh, was clearly stated. You hope to have your book canceled. So let's see what we can do in our conversation uh, to uh, to help uh, catalyze that that event. Um, so it's a dense read. It had a lot of great uh, um, references to history, social commentary, uh, plenty of stories on the rise of what you call new Puritans. So for the benefit of our listeners to level set who have not read the book yet, what are you um, what is your uh, definition of perhaps start with old Puritans? And uh, what does the term Puritan mean in your book? Well, the Pur- Puritan is both a literal reference to Big P Puritanism and a figurative reference to the conceptions of Puritanism that we have in our minds as just in the popular imagination. Scholars of the Puritan peri- period get very frustrated at those uh, those stereotypes that we have in our head of, of Puritans because it more reflects what they became the sort of Victorian era comstockery, the efforts to police public morality in the 19th century uh, that ultimately formed our stereotypical understanding of the blue-nosed, prudish, puritanically inclined individual. Um, But both those two things, those two phenomena, are represented and are very resonant and helpful to help us understand what has happened in the last decade. The book begins with a mystery, and the mystery is essentially how is it that for all our adult lives, the right 
uh, was the, the the political right, conservatives generally, were inclined to see impropriety and seemingly innocent cultural products. That we're talking about could, the moral majority, right? The, right, the moral majoritarian impulse, and it's sort of a, just a, a, a general tendency, a personality trait. But they would see in, in innocent cultural fare the capacity to corrupt you, degrade society. That used to be an exclusive tendency to the right. By contrast, the left that had formed its political, had matured politically in the, during the sexual revolution, emphasized self-gratification, uh, even hedonism for the sake of self-fulfillment, perhaps even at the risk of self-destruction. That flipped on its head over the course of, a, of a, the last decade. All of a sudden, we're now treated to moral crusades from the left, the commanding heights of American culture, entertainment companies imposing plottingly didactic narratives and media products so that they serve a higher social purpose than mere entertainment. Comedians emphasizing the pain that someone had to endure so that you could enjoy something as trite as a punchline. Sports coverage that shoehorns uh, prolonged digressions about the lamentable state of American race relations into sports coverage. And when fans object, and they do reliably object, they are explicitly admonished by their betters in this industry for clinging to their need for, to a, for some escapism over their duty as moral citizens to dwell on the horrors of existence at all times and in everything. How did this happen? So this book essentially teases out the theory of progressivism, because as the left has identified more with progressivism and left with le less with left liberalism, they've begun to adopt its habits of mind. Among them, a utopianism, a fear of idleness, that which is idle, which is not actively contributing to the grand project of our time, is, is worse than banal. It is actually detracting from that experience. And this, this uh, trait is accompanied by great displays of, of public labor and profound discomfort. And indeed, that is celebrated because it communicates to the outside world your piety, your discipline, and your commitment to the cause. And all, ultimately, a totalitarian outlook, because this is total. It is not a private practice. You are to be drafted into it. A lot of this has its roots in American Puritanism. And in that sense, it is very American. This is not an alien thing to our political culture. And I hope this book kind of helps you identify, one, gives you license to laugh at it because it is hilarious, objectively funny. But two, to help you understand that this is not some an alien species that has taken over the host here. This is a feature of the American political outlook. So the, indeed, the, but while um, both in the past we have used the term uh, Puritan in the pejorative and in the in our current conversation, uh, your book does acknowledge a lot of positive and noble intents of adherence to Puritanism, right? It, it's not that they are they have evil intent. They 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 genuinely want to um, uh, improve the world. In fact, your book's chapters are organized around what I would call unimpeachable virtues of Puritans. Uh, uh, each chapter uh, is uh, labeled piety, prudence, austerity, fear of God, temperance and order. Why did you structure your book uh, around uh, virtues? Uh, because in the abstract, what the modern puritanically inclined progressive is trying to do is remoralize society. It is a rejection of what their parents and grandparents pursued, which de-emphasized morality, conventional definitions of morality, and indeed conventional definitions of social structure in favor of something much more organic and um, and uh, freewheeling. And, and as such, this new generation is far more austere than their grandparents and their parents, generally actually a little less uh, lascivious and, uh, and chill and fun. Um, but nevertheless, what they are seeking to pursue are values that conservatives would recognize as being um, unimpeachably, as you say, uh, necessary to ensure an ordered society, particularly in the chapter on temperance, which is the very salacious chapter on alcohol and sex. Um, we the, the progressive left has rediscovered a sort of essential truth that conservatives always have known to be true, which is that when you have social settings in which men and women are present and it's also bathed in alcohol, really destabilizing things can happen. Now, this is something that was de-emphasized in the wake of the sexual revolution, though there were intellectuals on the left who protested the sort of licentious atmosphere that was being cultivated by those who adhered to the so-called uh, playboy philosophy. But nevertheless, that was not the prevailing ethos. It took over cult popular culture in the 70s, took over politics in the 90s, and was relatively unquestioned until the last decade. But they have since rediscovered these, these ideas 
about the value of of labor, about the value of virtue and of uh, and of being pious and humble and humility before the forces of of society and generally your own place in that society, which is far smaller than what their parents and grandparents uh, believed it to be. It is it is not it, as much as it manifests in narcissism. It is not a narcissistic idea. It is an idea about how society should structure themselves that puts society first, uh, puts progressive values first. Uh, and that, in that sense, it's recognizable to social conservatives in particular, because it does mirror and mimic thematically, if not in practice, quite a lot of the values that they hold. So your your uh, my my podcast uh, listeners are uh, both a mix of conservatives and progressives, um, and I think they listen because they like to hear uh, me talk with guests who, and as far as I can estimate, uh, haven't been captured either by the extreme right or extreme left. They're you know we have a reliable sane conversation. Uh, I think my friends on the left are listening for us to have a, a wonderful uh, um, uh, condemnation of cancel culture. Uh, I think on the on the left, perhaps they'd want us to have a show a. Um, a careless indifference to the the, the 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 pains of the world. What I like about your book, it, it does neither. It's neither a, a screed against cancel culture, nor is it um, uh, something, uh, neither did you glibly dismiss the concerns of the left, that you do neither, which I think is great. But what's more interesting to me, um, you have so many stories about how otherwise well-intentioned, I would call them, I think you call them in your book, self-professed liberals got swept up in this movement uh, that seems to show no mercy uh, uh, for the um, the intent or the the context, uh, and a, a, a demands complete retribution. Um, their scorn seems to write to both at right and left. Why is the new puritanism so indiscriminate? Why does it not care who it's it's uh, gotten its its uh, target? Yeah. So. Um... So there have been a lot of scholars who I admire who have talked about this new ethos overtaking the left as though it is essentially indistinguishable from a secular religion. And I take a little bit of issue with this. I do acknowledge that there are features of it that mimic a secular faith. Um, but there's um, there's more to it than that that transcends religious practice, transcends political practice. Uh, which is also why I relied on the theory of Puritanism to help make sense of this thing, because it is it is both of those. It is all of those. It is a theory of social organization that uh, that goes beyond the practice of religion than practice of politics is both. But it doesn't have a pathway for absolution uh, as traditional religions do. In the Western context, that usually comes from ideism, and ideism is utterly absent from this theory. Uh, so what you're left with are the trappings of religious practice, most of which are rather arduous. And to an outside observer, uh, they appear entirely fanatical. They they look to them, to the initiated, amongst the progressively inclined Puritan, like a mark of their seriousness, uh, their general sobriety and seriousness of purpose. But it looks to us like madness. So what you're left with are the um, the theatrical, the dramaturgy around the practice of this uh, this new theory of social organization, the work, quote unquote, the work, which is a display of great labor and profound discomfort in the pursuit of a spiritual goal, um, displays of self-deprivation, a willingness to sacrifice that which you find enjoyable and to force others to forego that which they find enjoyable in order to enforce and build a monoculture that is ostensibly defined by cultural competence and wisdom, but is generally laborious to adopt. Demographic essentialism in the form of a uh, uh, sumptuary laws. Your sartorial choices are supposed to express your accidents of birth, who you are, and to whom you are subordinate, and the projection of inward insecurities. A scholar that I that I quote rather frequently throughout the book uh, defined one of many traits that uh, that were typical typified Puritanism as quote anxious introspection, which manifests in practice in this idea among those who have the secret decoder ring that can peel back the curtain in the world, uh, that they can see in the banal, the most banal of activities beneath its placid surface, the uh, the uh, sinful origins of these practices, many of which are rooted in America's original sins. So that's how you get the idea that jogging is racist, that gardening is a, is a, a, a misuse of your time and subordinates minorities and is oppressive. Um, that sewing and knitting are imbued with bigotry. And these are sort of things that make almost no sense to anybody who's not 
steeped in this milieu. But once you're steeped in this milieu, you can see it and it provides you with a sense of exclusivity and a sense of purpose. So I, I, I think our listeners, are, their eyes might be rolling back in their head saying, oh, you guys talk a lot, a lot about theory. Give us some substantial uh, stories. Your book is is uh, replete with wonderful stories of uh, what, uh, at first glance, one might say is nut picking, some sort of uh, incredible story of one person who, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, steps uh, says the wrong thing is, is cast aside forever. But share with our listeners, it's your pick. You've got so many in your book. Uh, one that comes to mind that sort of illustrates this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, almost a Salem witch trial characteristic where, where an otherwise unwitting person who whose heart's in the right place winds up having his life ruined because of, uh, of, co- of course, of this, the sentiment of the, of the Puritan mob, if you will. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, I go out of my way to ensure that nut picking does not appear in this book. You will not be treated to a random Twitter controversy most of the time in this book. I think perhaps maybe once or twice I might be guilty of that, but I went very far in excess to attempt to avoid that. The book, the first chapter opens with several stories that come to mind. The first being that of Mahdi Wajdi, who is a grocer in Minneapolis. He was featured in on television. He was feted on the floor of the, U, of the U.S. House. Um, he was a fixture in his community. He had a daughter who was working at his grocer, who uh, twice in her youth, uh, at 14 and 18 respectively, a young adult, uh, used racial slurs on online that came to the attention of activists who demanded uh, a variety of retributions from him. Um, He was eventually compelled to fire his own daughter. That was not enough, though she was dedicating her life to the good noble works around uh, repentance. um, His uh, his lease was eventually canceled. This was the punishment befitting the sin, the careless parentage of a willful daughter. Uh, Likewise, the the, uh, soccer player Alexander Katai, who was cut from the Los Angeles Galaxy team because his wife, a Serbian national who only spoke Serbian, said a bunch of racist things, uh, during the 2020 riots, and they were racially insensitive. Um, but he was compelled to denounce his spouse. And when that was not good enough, he too suffered the loss of his career because of, again, a sin befitting the crime, his association with a woman of ill repute. Um, and the principle at work here is usually defensible. The principle, let's say, in the example of let's take the 2020 riots, for example, and the reaction to their response, which was a reaction against police violence. The principle that was advocated here is good and noble. It is that police should be subordinate to the communities they serve and responsible to the politicians they elect. No one objects to this principle. But in practice, it manifested in ways that emphasized the uh, display, the theater around it, and the virtue of those who would engage in that display. So the New York Times produced one such very humiliating episode, actually before the New York Times. Um, one of this, the way in which it's manifested isn't in legislative reforms or even in protests outside in the streets, both of which are kind of unconventional. It manifested in the commanding heights of American culture trying to purge from, from uh, cultural uh, products the, quote, good cop archetype. This is again taken from the New York Times, so that we don't we're not accused of nut picking. Um, the good cop archetype was present in scripted television programs, which engaged in in a garment rending, agonizing uh, uh, circular firing squad over whether police shows should even exist. The pro- the police program, uh, Live PD and Cops, were both canceled, both of which were accused of having uh, a theoretically advanced the notion that police are are. Uh, are moved to violence by the existence of these programs. The tangible good that they had done, finding at-large criminals, solving cold cases, finding missing persons, that was disregarded. The tangible good was subordinated to the theory. The theory won out. And in its most ridiculous manifestation, again, the New York Times, goes out, uh, highlights the backlash against Nickelodeon's cartoon show, Paw Patrol. It was an effort to, to get the, the, the first responders cartoon dogs as first responders to get them off television because they were somehow corrupting society with their good cop archetypes. Um, this is a display of personal um, anguish and personal self-deprivation and personal, uh, a big booming parade of sanctimony that ended up undermining the principle that was at work here. The principle became subordinated to this big display of piety to the point where one must conclude the piety is the point. 
So uh, forgive me, if, uh, you know, I'll confess that I have a more of a, an economist perspective of human behavior, uh, and that people make choices, you know, some better choices than others, but that optimize their own happiness or their perception of their own happiness. What could be the possible logical or practical reward for immiserating oneself and essentially uh, you know, embracing Puritan values, uh, Puritan-like values in one's own life, and then also uh, insisting others uh, practice the same, for lack of a better term, faith? Uh, why do we want to make ourselves miserable? Yeah, well, they are psychosocial. Um, <laughs> in in self-deprivation, you commit yourself to understanding the needs of others that are going unmet um in a purging culture of its vulgarity and, mo and modesty uh which in many ways this this new puritanical movement has succeeded in doing um you commit yourself to uh the pursuit of a uh a more noble and just world uh there is a there is psychological value to this in 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 the forms of of labor that you do, the work, as it were, which never ends, indeed cannot end, and must involve, in the in the words of its own advocates, must involve pain. It is an uncomfortable process to which you must commit yourself for the rest of your life. You engage in a far off journey that provides you with a fuller understanding of the world around you. This is the essence of all religious practice, and anybody who is favorable to religious practice, or at least isn't bigoted against it, would find nobility and in and, and self uh, self fulfillment and purpose in this, uh, because it is in the abstract the pursuit of good good works. And if you erect a social structure around it, there are tangible rewards uh, for being a good upstanding member of this uh, this social contract. Uh, so the and, and of course the psychological benefits of having the exclusivity of being one of the few who can see through the hidden workings of the world to identify their hideous machinations just under the surface gives you a, a sense of inclusivity that all human beings need. Uh, we all need to be part of a club to one degree or another. So it really isn't difficult to see the psychological benefits associated with this particular philosophy. Part of the problem is, is that its, it's particular manifestation in this form makes you into an absolutely miserable person to be around. There is no lightheartedness in this philosophy. You cannot have carefree joy. Carefree joy is a sacrifice of your duty to dwell to conceptualize the miseries about you, and in so doing, commit yourself to resolving them in whatever small way you can. But particularly when it comes to the, there's a half a chapter is on food and eating, and most of it is dedicated to what seems to be the activist purpose, which is to remove from the equation the op, the I, the possibility that you might forget for even a fleeting moment the pain of existence in an imperfect world. So you must I, I, always be aware of that. I want to come back to that because it's a very important point. But I, just on this point of uh, why someone would deliberately make himself or herself miserable, I think you make a great point in the book in that um, this sort of search for perfection in oneself and in, in the world, um, it, it doesn't actually just it's not merely incumbent on us uh, to to act, but on on everyone. Effectively, if, if you're indifferent to this uh, the Puritan cause, you're not merely uh, not part of the solution. You are part of the problem. In, in that context, uh, you point out that with the effect of this is it makes everything political. Literally, there's nothing, and you, you allude to the point of um, you know food or music or or anything. You know, everything becomes political in this new uh, rubric of 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 morality. Political is the right word for it too. Politics is not. We're not talking about politics properly understood. We're not talking about governmental or legislative affairs or electoral outcomes. We're talking about political themes. And you have to squint a little to see it, but it's not as though it isn't there. The problem is, is that this movement has imbued world historic import and meaning and intentionality in the forces that culminated in your burrito. I guarantee you your burrito does not have the social, political, and historic significance that this movement has imparted, has, has imposed on it. Um, part of the series of recommendations I, I leave the reader with in the final chapter is to reconceptualize politics as politics. We have expanded the definition of what constitutes politics beyond that which 
uh, has some legislative remedy, at least in the American context with our limited and constrained constitutional government. So you create a, a set of psychological conditions that cannot be met. And one of two things happens to you when you convince yourself of this grand historic moral import that these institutions are not responsive to. One, you just withdraw. You get really depressed and despondent and say, listen, these, this, this whole system is rigged. It's not doing what I believe needs to be done with every fiber of my being. And then you, you, you back out of the process. The second reaction, which is slightly more dangerous, is to radicalize, to resolve to attack the foundations of these wholly immoral institutions that are not responding with proper alacrity to your absolute moral imperatives. Uh, and that's pretty much who we're left with. The despondent people withdraw from the system. The fanatics re-engage. So we're left with a, a, a preponderance of fanatics who do not represent the American electorate writ large. They're just the last people in the room yelling at each other. And it creates a distorted perception of what our politics is and what our politics can achieve. So the idea here is to re reorient uh, the, the, di the dialogue in the nation around that which is actually politics and leave the political for the entertainment class. Well, um, you you point to the all-encompassing uh, influence of, of this new Puritanism. Um, but, you, you know, th this may invade ordinary people's lives in, in many subtle ways. Uh, you, you go into great lengths talking about uh, you know, life's enjoyment among the chief of the, among those is is food and and all the controversy among, uh, let's say, perhaps high minded or 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 um, high level uh, Epicurean magazines or, or or books or or restaurants. Again, you, your your book is replete with these kinds of questions. But I think uh, many of us know people who have become uh, vegans, and I think sort of uh, uh, as, as sort of a, a gesture to either um, uh, environmentalism or 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 something of that nature. But I think more importantly. Uh, you point out that vegans or people who are trying to uh, move away from meat uh, seem to delight in the fact that though um, it may be having a, a, a positive externality elsewhere, it, it tastes like hell. So uh, that's, <laughs> part of, that's part of the uh, joy of it, meaning if it tasted good, it, it wouldn't be as virtuous. The fact that being a vegan is a miserable way to eat uh, actually makes it that much more appealing, which seems counterintuitive, but but say more about this sort of the essence. Yeah, I don't actually go into veganism because in my affection for South Asian food, uh, <laughs> you can make actually very uh, attractive uh, vegan food. That That is more, um, more applicable in the uh, advocacy around insect consumption. So first, let's go to meat. The scientific rationalizations for abstaining uh, are extremely dubious. The notion here that we could, if we were to rapture every cow in America, out of existence, the impact it would have on uh, greenhouse gas emissions is negligible. Um, most greenhouse gas emissions are produced by burning fossil fuels. We know this. Uh, likewise, the health effects, the negative health effects on you and uh, its effect on you know, health insurance premiums in the risk pool are, are rooted on confidence inter intervals that are very low and subsequent re-examinations re of the studies that uh, that suggest that your health is is significantly negatively impacted by semi-routine, though not excessive, red meat consumption are very low. Um, and if you scratch at the surface of the people who make the arguments around the idea that meat eating is an attack on the climate and makes of you, uh, makes a, it has health effects, uh, ultimately um, becomes the language of morality in very short order. Um, you scratch at the surface of these arguments and meat eating is revealed to us as sin. It is an affront to the Eden into which we were born. Uh, it is uh, a callous pleasure that makes you a burden on your neighbors. It is a display of wanton cruelty to animals, uh, especially when there are alternatives like uh, this uh, nascent cellular meat technology. This is the language of morality. Indeed, it is the language of American Puritanism. Um, and the you know when we get into bug eating, which is supposed to be the supplement for red meat, uh, that will save the planet. In fact, saving the planet is very frequently emphasized above the idea that this experience will be remotely pleasurable for you, most likely because it will not be remotely pleasurable for you. But pleasure is beside the point. It is about saving the world repeatedly. And, and throughout the, the chapter on, on this phenomenon, what is emphasized here is the enjoyment you will take from your contribution to a social good, not the self-fulfillment you will derive from a pleasurable experience. Even sitting in front of a table full of friends and, and colleagues and associates who do nothing but comfort you 
is considered to be an abdication of your moral responsibility. Enter the organization Race to Dinner, which uh, makes uh, offers mostly well-meaning, democratic, liberal women who have, have no problems with racial issues in their lives, uh, sits them down for the uh, to a dinner with two uh, racial uh, consultants, racism consultants, who berate them over their bigotry over the course of a, of a meal for which they pay the, the privilege of $2,500 to attend. Uh, because the comfort that you find in meat, eating a meal is not, is, is uh, an abdication of your duty. In the, and we have, you know, activists who are creating these dinners now where white people have to pay a ridiculous amount of money for something that black people eat for free because you can't escape racism, not even in dinner. You have to be constantly confronted with the evils of the world. And in pleasurable environments that allow you an escape from that are worse than worthless. They are a contribution to a manifest evil in the world. So I've, uh, th this is a very interesting concept, but I also want to contrast it with the fact that um, if being miserable uh, is is uh, sort of the, the whole point, uh, I think for our friends who are sympathetic to the new Puritans who think, okay, look, you know, so so they want to remoralize. Uh, is that all that bad? I do see that, that um, uh, you could make a persuasive argument to a, a, a progressive that it does more harm than and then first meets the eye. You particularly talk about the harm to the areas of the arts, which is uh, um, easily understood comedians, but even visual artists or or any number of, of kind of uh, music um, that uh, it's constraining creativity. I'll, you, you quote H.L. Mencken often in your book. I just want to um, quote uh, all for my own. I say one of my favorite quotes for him is, uh, the greatest artists, greatest artists of the world are never Puritans and seldom even ordinarily respectable. No virtuous man has ever painted a picture worth looking at or written a symphony worth hearing or a book worth reading. So in my view, uh, it is the unusual people who are perhaps more unorthodox that would be the targets of this new Puritanism. And those kinds of folks are, are leaving the field, leaving all of us left and right uh, with lives that are far less rich and enjoyable. Say say something about the, the harm. Well, I actually have very little brief for, for H.L. Mencken. He's a source of many pithy quotes, but uh, quite a lot of contempt, uh, undue contempt for religiosity in, in ways that I don't share. Uh, nevertheless, um, what we're talking about here is the creation, or rather the a series of um, Im imperatives that creators are supposed to observe that produce stultified, stilted art. Um, you are one of the things, we'll go back to the big P Puritans, uh, they left very few art works of art behind. Um, one of the reasons that their philosophy has been so enduring is because they wrote a lot. They were unusually literate. But there were no, uh, por there were, save for portraiture, there were no, uh, you know, stirring works of art, music, performance. Uh, a lot of that was forbidden. What earned um, exemptions was, as I said, portraiture, headstones, furniture design, the sort of stuff that was meant to record posterity. It was useful. It wasn't idle art. It wasn't beauty for beauty's sake, which was idleness, and that was a grave sin. It had to comment on the contemporary. It had to convey contemporary morals, contemporary norms, contemporary values, and it couldn't be subtle because subtlety is something you can't be trusted with. So what we have today, for example, and this didn't make it in the book, it's just a new controversy that sort of arose, is executives at Disney pledging to insert LGBTQ themes and characters into their works uh, in very uh, unsubtle ways. You need to be beaten over the head with these themes because you can't be trusted with subtlety. We are to convey a contemporary moral value here. It's not just art for art's sake, even if that results in some in a in a, uh, a a theme that breaks your suspension of disbelief for a moment, which is something that any artist would strenuously avoid. But you can't avoid that anymore because that's not the social maxim we're supposed to pursue here. Uh, likewise, uh, the Puritan hostility to theater was rooted in this perception uh, that gender roles were terribly fragile that you could not mimic this kind of seductive mimicry. And the order of the day was that women couldn't perform because that would lead to, quote, whoredom, and that men simply couldn't perform either, in part because they had to adopt women's roles, and therefore they had they would be effeminatizing themselves. So there couldn't be any theater at all. Um, this is a, conveys a sort of conception of gender uh, as, a, as a social contract, perhaps a very mercurial thing, unless you're bombarded constantly with cultural stimuli that reinforces your gender roles. 
see something very similar in how the puritanically inclined progressive views transgenderism and views detransitioning or even people playing or performing roles that are not rooted in their pre-existing gender identity of the actor. Um, because if you don't constantly reinforce this belief, and the belief among the new puritanically inclined is that transitioning into the gender of your choice is not a choice at all. It is the fruition of a destiny conferred at birth. And anything other that does not reinforce that belief could be terrifyingly damaging. It could produce, uh, could contribute to this epidemic of suicides among people who, who are transgendered. Again, a good virtuous value, but one that is manifesting in worse art. For example, um, you had this uh, very high-profile event in which Scarlett Johansson uh, was denied a role, or she was she was taking a role in which she would play a transgender man, and the transgender community and, and the artists, artists around them were up in arms. They forced her to abandon this project to which she was attached, and the project died on the vine. Now, you might celebrate that as a work of inclusivity, but no one gets any work as a result of this. Transgender people, artists generally, the work dried up. No one's going to see this performance. No one's going to hear this man's story. Dante Gill, I'm um, uh, forgetting his last name. He was the, 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 the work was called Rub and Tug. He was a, he was a, a, a massage parlor owner and a, a transgender um, groundbreaker. Um, his story will never be made and you won't see it, not on the big screen, because transgender activists and the new Puritans for whom they, uh, this is a favorite constituency, killed it. All in the name of inclusivity, sure. But inclusivity that resulted in less enjoyment, less work, less art. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, since your book came out, I think since your book came out, Tom Hanks uh, regretted playing a, a gay man in uh, the film Philadelphia, saying uh, only gay men should play gay men on uh, on uh, on the big screen. So yeah, precisely. Um, it is a, it is a puritanical ideal. They would not recognize that in themselves, but that's vanity, and they need to be cured of it. And this book hopefully advances that. So we've been in a violent agreement, at least conceptually at a high level uh, for this conversation, but I don't think it would be complete. If I, I didn't push back and uh, if I have a critique with this book, it's in my experience, uh, if, if only it were the case that New Puritans uh, practiced what they preached and were sincere in their desire to, to reform the world, remoralize the world uh, and practice that, uh, my view is there's a soaring uh, level of hypocrisy amongst many of the uh, New Puritans, they'll, they'll profess to, for instance, want to uh, be concerned about uh, global warming, but live in a five thousand square foot house with a huge uh, footprint. They'll they'll travel to um, you know uh, Martha's Vineyard and St. Bart's, or go to ski in Colorado three times uh, every winter. So essentially, have very little actual regard for their their impact on the planet. But you know, your your book seems to give the New Puritans the benefit of the doubt and say they they believe what they preach and and what they demand of others. What what do you say to that? Yeah, I think that's a perfectly fair critique. Perhaps one um, covenant from the Catholic Church that would horrify the big P Puritans that the uh, progressively inclined Puritans have adopted is the concept of indulgences. Uh, you can, through your own virtue, purchase uh, a waiver for yourself and perhaps your. Uh, impious activities that are perhaps hypocritical, but if your heart is in the right place, and certainly if you have enough money, um, you can uh, manage to secure that for yourself. Uh, but most of, mostly what this movement is fixated on is not itself. It is not inward looking. This anxious introspection that I talked about before doesn't manifest in uh, in you sitting in a room quietly contemplating the abject state in which we find ourselves, the primary focus of the new Puritan is not them. It is you. <laughs> you are the problem. You are not living your life appropriately. You are contributing to the degradation of society. You must be reformed. They're on the good side, intentionally at least, if not in practice. You're neither intentionally nor in practice on the good side, and you are the object of their fixation. Indeed, they, they they vote for the right party. They drive electric cars. Uh, you're they're, they're all set. Let's take briefly comedy. I know we're going very long here. Okay, but there's a an, a story from the section on comedy that illustrates this. So there's a guy named Seth Simons uh, who wrote about stand up comedy uh, and particularly a colloquial what was colloquially deemed cringe comedy in the early 2000s. This is a form of humor that leveraged dark humor and speakable things. Um, Homophobia, sexism, violence, uh, you know, the sort of stuff that you might think, 
would make you a pretty terrible person if you enjoyed that joke, much less told it. But this is the essence of dark humor. It is to find levity in the depths of American, American of the human experience, the great despair, uh, and to find uh, something enjoyable in that and, and funny in that so that you can endure that which is unendurable. This is a feature of mankind. So he finds in this dark humor form the origins of the alt-right and draws a straight line from 2004, where this was a, a popular form of comedy, right to the sacking of the Capitol building, this black swan event that had never happened before, a profound leap of logic. Um, but nevertheless, that's his theory. But he does not believe that these stand-ups who are acting out these antisocial behaviors on stage are going to jump off stage and subsequently commit crimes or abuse people or, or degrade society broadly. It's you who could be doing that. You are the problem. This is very much akin to what people who are of a, a conservative predilection said about Richard Pryor, said about uh, uh, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, uh, all of whom were targeted by censorious moralizers for their corrupting influence on society, and particularly the flippancy with which they regarded the great evils of our time, even up into and including race. I mean, this was a conservative predilection. It is no longer. It is a progressive predilection. Uh, indeed. Again, I, we, we talked about it briefly, and as you say, we are running out of time, but uh, I'm old enough to remember growing up thinking the, uh, the threat to culture was going to be some uh, drug-addled hippie or something like this uh, who scoffed at bourgeois mores and uh, lived a you know terrible, debauched life. Uh, the moral majority seems to have uh, you know, crumbled, uh, and this new um, uh, remoralization from the left is coming along. Um, I'll ask two questions about it. How did this happen? And my, my going towards my final question, you draw parallels both from the uh, old ascendancy of the old Puritans to the uh, new Puritans, but also the decline of the old Puritans and the new Puritans. So I think you can combine your answer into both. Um, you know, how did we shift from uh, uh, moral majority on the right to the left? And what are the, the, the seeds of its own destruction that you, you foretell in your, in your book? This burst of moral enthusiasm around the Dobbs decision notwithstanding, quite a lot of the conventional culture wars that the right was inclined to wage had declined in importance rapidly, in fact, over the Trump years. Uh, things like gay marriage, which is now a majority proposition among Republicans, self-described Republicans, to say nothing of everybody else. Divorce, um, which the thrice-divorced president of the United States, who commands the uh, support of most of the conservative movement, just sort of faded in importance. And even abortion, uh, again, notwithstanding this particular new legislative environment that we that we find ourselves in, uh, had declined as a result of declining abortion rates, which had reached their lowest point in 2019. The law does not make an appearance in this book, really, very minimally. Government, education, the workplace, unless your workplace creates a cultural product. This book is about the stuff where politics should not be, where politics really cannot be, because it, again, is not is not politics properly understood. It is merely political. Um, so given these cultural wars, the retreat, either uh, either victory, defeat, or simply capitulation in the culture wars, this retreat from the field by the right created a vacuum, and the left has eagerly filled it, uh, following this, uh, the origins of this phenomenon are, are tough to place. John Haidt and Greg Luganoff in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, identify 2013 as essentially the inception date of this new movement, um, which began mostly on campuses with this conception of safetyism, of conflating um, conflating uh, emotional duress with literal trauma, right. um, words physical with violence, words with violence, right? Words with violence and therefore violence with words. Um, but conflating nonconformity with menace and words with trauma, and that migrated off campus. And in a spectacular act of piracy, uh, these individuals who were trained in the academy to use this language um, wielded it uh, in, in ways that mimic, I think, emotional and uh, and moral blackmail to take over these institutions, most of which were beholden, you know, philosophically to this progressive idea of uh, a remoralization of society. And the, the the zealots coming up from from underneath them managed to secure the reins of power as a result of this language that they were taught to use. So if there's an inception day, I think it's general. I think I, I agree with Haidt and Lukianov. Uh, that that's where it began, but it has since manifested and, and evolved and manifested into this great role reversal, how the left is getting back in touch with its own morality. And 
more it's moral obligation in fact to use all of society's engines uh harness them towards this one noble end which is the perfection in so far as it's possible of the human experience um it is an american idea this is not again and not anathema to the american experience um the fear of uh this this frustration with american americans origin story on the progressive left has been expanded beyond all rational proportion to uh, all its traditions. If America's origin is, is tainted in racism and homophobia and sexism and violence and all the other things that render the American experience experiment suspect in the eyes of a very, a very um, uh, uncompromising sort of progressive, then so are its traditions, so are its pastimes, so are its diversions. All are similarly tainted. These are worthless frivolities. They do not actively contribute to the betterment of society. And if they don't make that contribution, then they are worse than worthless and need to be extirpated. Um, this is you mentioned the that. right. The right remains culturally revanchist. Don't get me wrong. But if I was writing a book about the old Puritans, that would be a valuable insight. This is this would be searing insight in 1988. What's interesting now is that the left, the new story that I'm telling here is that the left has gotten back in touch with its moral center and is executing a ruthless campaign to remoralize society in ways that Gertrude Himmelfarb, who wrote a book on the remoralization of society, would have found absolutely uh, shocking because it was believed by conservatives that you could not reverse this uh, this trend. The monkey's paw has curled, and we're, we're getting the remoralizations of society, albeit on terms that conservatives would probably disagree with. So uh, I want to, I'll ask it again. Um, when does the fever break? In my view, it seems like it is just right. now sort of, uh, you know, again, we, we, we mentioned Disney, but of course, uh, the uh, governor there pushed back. We have a lot of uh, um, even uh, Netflix saying, look, if uh, you take issue with the range of our, our product, maybe you should work somewhere else. It seems that uh, we've, we've reached maximum woke or new Puritanism. Um, what will make people leave it uh, and, and ultimately uh, put down the ball and, and leave the field? Uh, well, internally within this uh, apparatus, uh, within this philosophy, uh, the people I talk to, nine out of 10 of them are, are liberal, vote Democratic, uh, do not support Republicans, never would. But they are quietly resentful of this condition that is robbing them of a joy and enthusiasm for their life's work, in some cases making them leave their life's work. Um, so within the coalition, that well, I hope to catalyze by giving you permission and, and a way to look at this theory as though it's funny and laugh at it. Humor is the answer in part there. The second part is, as you say, commercial pressure. Uh, I uh, utilize the story of uh, a band in Boston, the phrase band in Boston, to illustrate this. Though the, In the heart of mainline Protestant New England, uh, it was a very censorious culture. It, it, you know, the the Society for the Suppression of Vice was organized around the need to uh, ban this very seditious tome, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Uh, and it was very successful well into the 20th century. Uh, books were banned, plays were bottlerized, songs couldn't be played on the radio in Boston. But eventually, this the phrase banned in Boston went from being a warning against the consumption of impure literature to a powerful advertisement for it. Publishers actively sought to have their books banned in Boston to increase sales in the rest of the country. Why? Because the Bostonians, who were censorious moralizers, were much smaller than everyone else. It was a tiny group you could not cater to and be commercially successful. Um, likewise, you see this now from, you saw it from Netflix, with the standing behind Dave Chappelle, you saw it from Spotify, standing behind Rogan, and you see it in the form of books that are banned on Amazon, banned on Facebook. It's the modern equivalent of banned in Boston. And when that happens, these books achieve commercial success wildly disproportionate to the PR campaigns around them because it, it functions as a powerful advertisement for this titillating literary experience you absolutely have to have yourself. The, the, the seeds of this movement's destructions have already been sown. Uh, I think they are going to bear fruit in very short order. Uh, and I think it's an entropic condition. I don't think it needs much to to force it ha to happen because your first encounter with this movement is likely to be when it has taken something you like and adulterated it or outright banned it. Uh, and this is a small group of people taking things away from a much larger host. It's a cult of misery. And cults of misery have short shelf lives in American history.
Wonderful. Well, we're, as you say, we've run out of time. I think we've gone well over, um, uh, but I've enjoyed every bit. I think I could go much longer on this book. I'll encourage our listeners, rather than listen to us, perhaps pick up the book and, and read it. I think they'll enjoy it from cover to cover. Where can our uh, listeners find your new book, Noah? Uh, you can find it wherever fine books are sold. Uh, Amazon, <laughs> Barnes & Noble. Uh, it should be in your local bookstore. It's all over. Uh, I hope you do pick up a copy and I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, uh, reach out and tell me about it. Good. And uh, when you're not writing wonderful books, you are writing uh, for the legendary magazine Commentary. Uh, where uh, where can people find Commentary? Uh, commentary.org online. It's Commentary Magazine. It's a hard copy periodical if you would like to subscribe. It is very valuable if you do. Uh, I also write for msnbc.com um, maybe twice a month. And you can see me on Twitter at Noah C. Rothman. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining Hubwong today. Uh, this has been a, an interesting topic, uh, one that's food for thought for our listeners. I think it's maybe um, uh, therapy for uh, our friends on the left and maybe a little bit of a, uh, an explanation, a little more understanding for those folks on the right. So thank you very much for making us a little bit wiser today, Noah. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. This has been a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.